Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. We're married, and we like to do a lot of different things together. But what got us together initially was that we love to eat and we like to drink. And we love to learn how our favorite foods and beverages came to be. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk about something delicious and answer the question, Where did this come from? know if anyone out there listening has been to Acadia National Park before, but we got to go there last weekend, which is why we didn't have a show. And spoiler. It's beautiful. It's absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Um, yeah, it was so serene and peaceful. We just needed a, a mental break from the from the real world. Yeah. Well, I think also just like a different, um, I don't know. We just need to change the scenery. Yeah. It's nice to not be in our house for a couple nights. Exactly. After we, we love our house. It's great. 13, but, 13 consecutive months uh, of being here most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was really nice. And we were close to Bar Harbor, which is just like the most quintessential New England town ever. It really is. It's very cute. Had a lot of lobster rolls and ice cream. Mm-hmm. And yes. it was fabulous. Some, some cold weather lobster rolls and ice cream because it's still. Yeah. It was quite chilly up there. It was chilly up there. And actually, we were, like, rushing to get out the door, and I forgot my jacket, so we oh, right. we were forced to stop at L.L. Bean in Freeport, Maine on the way up so I could get a new jacket. Heavy air quotes on forced. <laughs> yeah. I think Laura forgot it on purpose. I really didn't, but- I want a new jacket. It, it worked out okay. Um, oh, my god. And it was good that I had a jacket because it was pretty cold. It was. It was super chilly. Uh, anyway, before we keep going down that rabbit hole, welcome yes. back, everybody, to another episode of Where Did This Come From? The podcast where we talk about all things delicious and their origin stories. I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. And this week, we find ourselves with another episode about one of my favorite things in the world. Wine! Yay! Yes, <laughs> specifically, the story of wine in America and how it almost never came to be. Yeah, I think I've heard you, like, Tell me this story. Probably. Unsolicited. Unsolicited. <laughs> As you can but imagine. But I'm excited to hear the organized version of it. Yeah. Now, it's a really um, it's a really deep and interesting topic and honestly could be an entire podcast miniseries on its own, and it probably is for somebody else. And as Laura knows, and as a lot of our regular listeners do as well, I can get really long-winded sometimes and into the details on things I'm really excited about, like wine. Um, so I'm going to do my absolute best to wrap this up very neatly in 30 to 40 minutes. Okay. I'll keep you on track. I thank you. That's generally our MO in life anyway. (laughs) Um, that being said, for those of you out there who might be looking for a comprehensive history on this topic, there are lots and lots of great resources out there. And I'm going to call out a few of them that I used for this uh, at the end of the episode. So let's dive into it because there is a lot to talk about. So the history of the vine in America begins in the foggy mystery that shrouds the uh, the medieval Norseman's explorations. Okay. That's right. American wine starts with Vikings, Hmm. symbolically at least. Um, So every American generally is taught the story of Leif Erikson growing up in his conquests and how in AD 1001, got to add that one in there, it's important, uh, he sailed from Greenland to the unknown country to the West, which is, of course, North America. And the story, however, isn't exactly all clear. So historians disagree, as many of our topics that Mm -hmm. go back far enough, uh, as to what the records of this voyage actually tell us, since most of them are actually 
saga narratives or like mythology, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they come from a very remote era, really strange, hard to decode language, um, not critical, indistinct, and generally contradictory based on which first person's version of the story you're reading. But most experts will agree that Leaf or somebody reached the new land here at that time period. There, in the New World, at least according to one story, while Leaf and his men went exploring in one direction, another member of the company, who was a German by the name of Turker, went off by himself in a different direction, and made the discovery of what he called wineberries, or vinber, in the original Old Norse language, Mm. which translated into English as grapes. Okay. Now, the Norsemen made Turker's grapes a part of their cargo when they sailed back home, and Leif, in honor of the, uh, the notable part of the country's produce, called the land Wineland. So as a German, Turker claimed to know what he was talking about. And he said, quote, uh, or as directly quoted as possible, <laughs> something this long ago, uh, I was born where there is no lack of either grapes or vines, he told Leif. But the latest opinion inclines to believe that the, the vines of Leif Erikson's Wineland um, which was actually probably at the time northern the northern coast of Newfoundland. Right, I was going to say probably Canada already. Yeah, there is no grapes there. Um, but they <laughs> were probably cranberries, wild oh, cranberries that they actually found. Uh, another guess is that what the Vikings named the land for was actually meadow grass called um, archaic, uh, archaic language vin or vinber, which was then later misinterpreted by tellers of the saga. Hmm. Yeah, so no wild grapes grow at such a high latitude anywhere in the world. Interesting. Uh, We've talked about that wine belt before in previous episodes. So this is definitely north of the 40th parallel. Right. Though it's powerfully tempting to believe that the Vikings really did discover grapes in their quote-unquote Vinland, uh, the evidence is pretty much all against them. Unless, for some reason at that time, the climate was much warmer and more temperate there than it is now, which, mm, global warming in reverse, I don't think so. But it's a fun story, like a lot of the stuff we have here. It's a really cool tale. The name of Wineland, however, was actually a really kind of a prophecy because the continent that they discovered was, in fact, a really great natural vineyard where just to the south, where we are in in America, from coast to coast, native grapes were thriving everywhere. Now, it's important that I emphasize the word native here. Um, because the vines of European winemaking, we've talked about before, it's the species Vitis vinifera, which is Latin for the wine bearer. Now, Very literal. Quite literal, yeah. Latin is very literal. Um, the grapes that vinifera yields, for the most part, have really thin skins, tender, sweet flesh, really soft, delicate flavors, and a really high sugar content that's suitable for the production of wine. No such grape has ever been native to North America. Right, yeah, I think of more like tart, thick skin. Exactly. The native grapes are tough, wild, small, sour, uh, and more notable for the vigor and hardiness of their vines than Mm. for the quality of the wine made from their fruit. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And all the explorers and early settlers made note of the abundant and vigorous wild grapes everywhere. And they could really hardly help doing so since they were obviously everywhere to be seen along the coast of North America where people landed when they first got here. Actually, the pilgrims here in New England found the species that's now called um, Vitis labrusca, and that was everywhere in the woods around their settlements. Now, we have never heard of Vitis labrusca before, but we've all actually heard of it in one way. So the labrusca, also known as the northern fox grape, is the best looking of all these native grapes with really large berries. They could be black, 
They could be white. Uh, some are red. And the reason we know this is because the best known native species is the Concord grape. Hmm. So it's the one we're all most familiar with here in the States. Um, and it's like they use for grape juice, grape jelly, yeah. everything like that. Loaded with sugar, though, because the name fox grape, uh, often given to the Labrusca family, um, is also known as foxy. Because it got that name because um, it was actually the flavor and the of the grapes and the wines themselves were like kind of gamey, hmm. kind of gamey and earthy and animaly and interesting. Now in the right hands, that could be a good old world wine characteristic, but I guess yeah. it was a little too funky. Um, so yes, and people kind of just latched onto that and started calling it the Northern Fox grape. Now. Obviously, these grapes produced really terrible wine. Um, and there were attempts, actually, after this, where people brought vinifera grapes in from Europe and attempted to grow them in North America, but those all failed. Um, the Virginia's original plantings, as an example, failed. Um, New England failed. Uh, after a few years, the grapevines all died because vitis vinifera, so wine grapes, are generally adapted to Mediterranean climates, so right. dry summers, uh, wet winter that really isn't common here in North America. It's wet summers, wet winters, right. humid. Cold. <laughs> exactly, yeah. cold. Especially here in the Northeast where the European settlers first kind of arrived. Um, and it encountered diseases and had an insect native to North America that we've talked about before called phylloxera. Mm-hmm. Now, phylloxera. The killer of. The killer. The European grapes. Because vinifera evolved in Europe, the wine grapes evolved in Europe. It had no resistance, and vinifera plantains died within three or four years in North America because they just couldn't hang. Now, the introduction of the European grapes, though, even though they died, it introduced vinifera pollen, which then created these chance hybrids with native grapes here in North America. Mm. And these tasted a lot better, at least closer to like the European ancestors, if you will. And they survived. They survived. They survived because it was based in American rootstock. So American winemakers soon discovered hybrids like the Alexander and the Catawba uh, and used them to produce wine here. Um, started the really first native, we'll call it quote unquote, native wines of North America. When was this? This would have been in the early 1600s, late 1500s, so a long time ago. Um, so remember that name Catawba because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Okay. So, jumping ahead a little bit, 1619, not jumping ahead that much, but a little bit, <laughs> the modern year of 1619. <laughs> this is going to be a long episode. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Um, part one of seven. <laughs> the, so, in 1619, um, we see the first legislation for wine law in the U.S. So, England wanted wine from their American colonies, and the first legislative assembly in the New World, which was the House of Burgesses of Virginia, passed what was called Act 12. And that required every male household in Virginia colony to plant 10 vines of imported vinifera grapes from Europe for the purpose of growing and making wine. Now, they'd figured out that the native grapes at that time didn't make great wine. And actually, one guy who was an overachieving settler, they called him, uh, John John Johnson, which is his actual name, very original parents, um, he surpassed all the requirements of the law and planted 85 acres 
Wow. That's a lot. So it was 10 vines was the requirement. He planted right. 85 acres. And that land still produces wine to this day. Oh, wow. It belongs cool. to Williamsburg Winery. And they actually produce an Act 12 Chardonnay in honor of the law that started the whole thing. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Actually, Virginia's wine industry is solid. I don't really know that I've had Virginian wine I've had before. some Virginia wine. In Virginia, obviously. Yeah. It's it's everywhere. Um, and there's a lot of great wineries. It's kind of like people who live outside of the North Fork of New York, of Long Island, mm. don't really know too much about Long Island wine. Um, but Virginia produces some really high quality wines. Mm. Yeah. Right. It's, don't sleep on that Virginia wine if you can find it. So in 1779, right after the kind of start of the Revolutionary War, a few years after, the first grapes were planted in California. At that point, Franciscan missionaries, actually, the ones who planted them there, uh, in Mission San Diego de Alcala. So Spanish father Junipero Serra planted a varietal now known as Mission Grape, and that dominated the commercial um, wine industry of California until the late 1880s. Oh, wow. Over 100 years. Yeah. Had a good run. A really good run. Really solid run. So was that commercialized, or they just made wine for the monastery? Uh, I'm on, well, commercially, yeah, I mean, there were commercial wineries at that time right. in California. from those it's, mission grapes. It started with the missionary oh, itself, okay. but then the mission grapes Became were then planted, yeah, by actual wineries outside of the, the Franciscan Brotherhood of Monks. Gotcha. Okay. So back to that hybrid vinifera American native grape called Catawba, which is C-A-T-A-W-B-A, Catawba. Oh, curveball. So, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> when, you, when you think of American sparkling wine, what part of the country do you think of? California. Same. Same. Because a lot of the, the French champagne houses built properties in California and produce very high quality sparkling wine, sparkling wine which yeah. is really champagne, just coming from California. Same exact grape, same exact method. So what if I told you the first American sparkling wine was from Cincinnati, Ohio. That would be very surprising Very to surprising. Me. <laughs> well, guess what? The first American sparkling wine was from Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> I am shocked. I am shocked. That is brand new information. Um, so a lawyer named Nicholas Longworth planted a vineyard with these new crossing grapes, these Catawba grapes, uh, and tried his wines three years later once the vines were mature enough to produce fruit. And they were musky. Uh, it was kind of native and kind of weird, but it was still showing more potential than the native grapes on their own were. Hmm. So thinking the wine's musky flavor might have been caused by the skins, Longworth decided to remove the skins from the grape juice before fermentation. So the result was actually a really sweet, light-bodied pink wine, similar to White Zinfandel that would come many years later. Hmm. So it was really popular. It spread really quickly across the Ohio Valley, and Longworth quit his law practice and devoted all his time and fortune to making wine. Wow. Yeah. And during the 1830s, Longworth planted more vineyards and increased production as his business grew, but it wasn't until 1842, after some wine was unintentionally fermented a second time, kind of like we talked about in our champagne episode, that Longworth had his next breakthrough. The accidental bubbly was the best wine he had ever produced to that point. But Longworth didn't know how to properly control the winemaking process for sparkling wine. So he hired French champagne makers to come into America and teach him the, the traditional method yes. champenoise. Hmm. 
but the process still wasn't perfect. Um, and Longworth lost about a third of his production oh. to bottles exploding from being overpressurized. Oh. Ouch. Regardless, demand soared for this new intriguing wine in the States, and even among the wealthy wine drinkers who had previously drunk nothing but authentic French champagne were seeking this out. Hmm. So by 1859... Ohio was America's biggest wine producer. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah. It was what bottling uh, well, it was bottling at the time more than 570,000 gallons of wine a year, which is twice as much as California at the same time. Wow. Out of Ohio. So Longworth and his Catawba wine, they were like king of the world yeah. basically with a production of more than 100,000 bottles a year, which distributed across the country and even into Europe. Europe was importing Ohio sparkling wine. Yeah, that seems. It seems like untrue. it's not true. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I I double checked, triple checked. Yeah, I believe you. Uh, so the wines even impressed the famous Ohio poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who praised Longworth's flagship grape in a poem called "Ode to Catawba Wine," hmm. which begins with the line, "Very good in its way is the Verzenay, or the Sillery, soft and creamy." But Catawba wine has a taste more divine, more dulcet, delicious, and dreamy. Ooh. Yeah, so is know, it right? still made today? It is not as I far mean, as I know. Yeah. Not as far as I know. And the reason for that is just as Ohio's wine fame was really peaking, the industry came crashing down. Uh, in, ni- uh, 19, in 1860, vineyards across the state were plagued with black rot and powdery mildew, oh. which destroyed more than 10,000 vines in southwest Ohio. Oh, that's so sad. I just got gutted in just a number of years. But oh, what could have been the Ohio wine industry? Yeah, I know. People would be going to wine country in Ohio. I know. I mean, so Napa. obviously we think about places like California, Napa, Sonoma, Oregon, yeah. Washington when it comes to American wine. But it wasn't until the gold rush in the late 1840s, early 1850s, that vines were actually planted in Northern California in Sonoma, Napa, all those places, hmm. which is really late in the game as far as the story goes with American wine. Right. Actually, until Prohibition, which was, of course, 1919 to 1933, the number one and number two wine-producing regions in the country were New York huh. and Missouri. Wow. Missouri at one point was the West. It was the West Coast of right. the country. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, which actually leads me to the time American grapevines saved the wine world, which we yes, touched on in the Burgundy episode a little bit, specifically grapevines from Missouri. So in the 1870s, a German immigrant by the name of George Hussman and other Missourian grape growers shipped millions of American grape cuttings to France and other European countries to save vineyards that had been infected with phylloxera, which we talked about earlier, which, of course, originated here in North America, which American North American grapevines were immune to. Right. But somehow it made its way back to the old world, right. which almost destroyed the wine industry in Europe. Yeah. So wait, did phylloxera get to Europe by people bringing wine clippings or, you know, vines from the well, U.S.? I don't know if that's the case because the American rootstock of vines were immune. I guess could they be like carriers of the disease well, I or think, something? I, I don't think know. in some way it was obviously, it, sh- it was shipped across accidentally. Yeah. Back to Europe and yeah. it started to spread because it's not native to Europe. 
Right. Native to North America. But so, so we created the problem and then solved the problem. Very American of us, to be totally honest with you. Um, so, yeah. So what they did in Europe was they grafted their their native Vitis vinifera grapes onto the American rootstock that we sent across. And because of that, it saved the the wine industry in Europe. Yeah. That, I mean, that is a really fascinating story. It is actually Hussman, um, who is the founder of the Hermanoff Winery in Missouri, is known as the father of the Missouri wine industry. Hmm. Does Missouri still have a wine industry? I believe so, yeah. Cool. I don't know how big it is. Um, I'm assuming not huge, but they right. still grow, yeah, they still grow wine there. So fast forwarding to Prohibition. Okay. Which we now know from our previous episode just decimated the American wine industry. Yeah. Um, wine was still being produced, but only certain vineyards got government approval to produce medicinal wine mm. at that time, which was sold in drugstores. What a drag. I know. Although I wouldn't mind a, a prescription to some medicinal wine. <laughs> I mean, we can just have wine. I meant at the time. I mean, so obviously 12 to 13 years of prohibition. um, A lot of those who actually had winemaking know-how and skills in the States had either retired, passed away, or were too poor to get back in the game after prohibition. So Mm. it took several decades um, for this kind of know-how to bounce back and this industry to kind of bounce back. Yeah, it probably completely died. It did. Grapes were still being grown throughout prohibition, and they were actually being exported. People were still oh, getting okay. American grapes for stuff, I think, probably other than just winemaking. But um, the grapes never stopped growing. That's good, I guess. Which is good. But the winemakers, the ones who had the know-how of how to like then take them right. and do the thing, a lot of that disappeared. So a whole new generation after you know 30 years, really, um, of winemakers cut their teeth. And by the 60s, Americans were really getting interested in wine again. And that kind of jumps us up into the mid-70s. And the amazing events of 1976 that got American wine recognized really Mm. as something stellar around the world. So if anyone's ever seen the movie Bottle Shock, highly recommend going to see Bottle Shock. It's a great little flick. And in 1976, the Judgment of Paris uh, was this tasting, um, blind tasting that was organized by a British wine expert by the name of Steve Spurrier, Stephen Spurrier. So in this blind tasting in France, a 1973 Chardonnay by Milenko, a.k.a. Mike, Gergich, which wine drinkers out there might recognize the name Gergich Hills because he went on to open that winery years later. But at the time, he was making wine for Chateau Montalena, which is another very famous winery in California, mainly because of this exact story. Mm-hmm. So the 1973 Chardonnay took first prize in the white wine category, beating all of the best white burgundies yeah. from France. Which blew the tasters' minds. Right. Well, because I think everyone kind of was, like, scoffing at, mm-hmm. the, like, this American entry. Ugh. Which they actually had right to for a long time because American wine wasn't anything to really write home about for a long, long time. Yeah. Now, at this point, obviously, there had been several great vintages. Um, so, yeah, 1973, Chateau Montalena Chardonnay won the best white category. And on the red side of the equation, the 1973 Stag's Leap Cab won top honors. Both Americans, both American wines took top honors for red and white in a blind tasting, which just shook the wine world to its core at the time. Yeah. Revolutionary. It was. It really, really was. I mean, had that not happened, it probably would have been stunted by another couple decades, to be honest with you. If they hadn't placed at all. 
But yeah, highly recommend going see Bottle Shock if you can. By going to see it, I mean just... <laughs> Go to your local movie theater where they're pay- playing really old movies and they're open. <laughs> it's not really old. It's probably like 10 or 12 years old. But just get like it streaming. Than that. Get it on streaming. Because yeah. um, the story of it is that the term Bottle Shock is an actual thing. Go look it up. I'm not going to go into it. But when they got their Chardonnay to France, it was like brown. And they thought it had gone bad mm-hmm. on the plains. And what it was, it was what this is term is bottle shock, where the wine just like gets so confused from all this travel, it kind of like falls out of solution basically and mm-hmm. looks terrible. It just looks like it's going to be garbage. By the time the tasting came around, though, it had it had settled itself back down. Yeah. And clearly was, fine. was fantastic. Now, 20 years later, American wine may have actually helped foster diplomacy with Russia, hmm. a very tense time in the world. So President Bill Clinton... And Russia's president at the time, Boris Yeltsin, held a summit at Hyde Park about the Bosnian missile crisis in the mid-90s. Mm. And Clinton ordered several cases of 1994 vintage dry Riesling from Dr. Constantine Frank Winery, which is in the Finger Lakes, upstate New York. Interesting. For the occasion. He ordered several cases. So the two men went into a room, just the two of them. Tensions were very, very high. But after several hours and probably several bottles of Riesling, (laughs) both men left the room with smiles on their faces, slightly reddish faces, uh, shaking hands and laughing. You can see it. There's very famous footage of this happening. They just had to get drunk and work out the world They get drunk and have a little chat. Um, So the team at Dr. Frank's um, can't help but feel like their dry Riesling helped secure diplomatic union Hmm. between the two countries. Um, and avert a potential global crisis in yeah. the mid to late 90s. That's a, that's a fair claim, I feel like. I think so. A certain percentage of it yeah, anyway. a little bit. So, wine in America. I mean, in the last 25 years, it's, it's grown even you know more exponentially. It's just insane how much wine our country produces. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I feel like when I think of American wine, I think of obviously California, the West Coast, Northern, mm-hmm. like Northern Pacific Northwest. Um, but I feel like I have this image of it going way back. Like it was always in California. Yeah. And those are the more established, you know, vineyards. And they've just been producing wine for, you know, a couple hundred years. But it's interesting to hear that that's actually not the case at all. Yeah, I mean, we're actually we're inching closer to a couple hundred years, but no, I think I I would think the same thing. Like it's like well, we've had people in this country since the, I mean, we've had Europeans in this country as far as right. we know since at least the fourteen fifteen hundreds, um, and you know, explorers on the west coast just as long. Um, it's surprising that they didn't kind of settle in and plant wine grapes sooner, yeah. but they brought a lot of it with them. Actually, there was a story I didn't I didn't grab for the the notes, but. After the signing of the Declaration of Independence, um, there was a huge drinking party, as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, And they celebrated with lots and lots of Madeira. Oh, okay. Yeah, Madeira. Um, But yeah, it's it's always been a a core of the country, but for so long it was just never our own wine. Mm. Um, It was probably just like never quite as good as what you could import. Yeah, for a long time. For a while. I mean, even some of it still now, that's the case. Um, yeah. But we really have 
come a long way in 150 years of California wine anyway. Right. Um, but yeah, the, it's, it's an industry that almost didn't exist. Like if people didn't have enough like drive to want that wine and yeah. want to grow it themselves and produce it themselves, it might have never happened here. Yeah. Well, even like the vineyards that we've visited – you know, on both coasts, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, people talk about it being our true labor of love. Like for most winemakers, mm-hmm. you're not getting into it for the money because it's really hard. It It is, especially with the huge, huge wineries that exist out there right. um, that swallow up a huge piece of the market share. Um, yeah. It is. I mean, anything anything that's produced like that, wine, beer, spirits to a certain extent, you're, if you're doing it at a, a, a scale where you just kind of like get into it, you're definitely not making a ton of money. So right. you have to really love the farming and really love the production of it. And right. It's yeah. uh, go support your local, small local wineries if you have them yeah. anywhere near you. If they're decent. We're not, we're not uh, <laughs> advocating to drink uh, crappy wine, but sometimes the small guys are just as good. Life's too short to drink bad wine. Agreed. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. So some resources that helped me compile all this information. Um, Obviously, I had to leave a lot out of this. I am very proud of you. I appreciate that. Streamlining Um, as much as possible. Every little kind of story I told goes down these tangents and ripple effects that could have been whole episodes of other podcasts. But some resources that helped me. Uh, a book called A History of Wine in America from the Beginnings to Prohibition by Thomas Pinney. Uh, American Experience on PBS.org. Wine Folly, my favorite. Wine Folly is a fantastic site. Um, really great kind of, if you don't have a lot of wine knowledge, it really helps you approach the world of wine in a very good way. Uh, and then WineSpectator.com, specifically an article titled The Father of American Sparkling Wine uh, by a man named Nick Foschald. If I mispronounce your name, Nick, I do apologize, but that's my best guess. Awesome. So, yeah, wine in America. Yeah, good one. Who knew? We all know now. We all know now. Absolutely. Um, So we've come to the end of another episode. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening, as always. Uh, Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platforms. And you can follow us on Instagram at where did this come from underscore pod. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a wonderful week. And stay safe. We'll see you next time on Word of the Scupper.